Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Wednesday was was a hard day for me. It was a sad day, um, pretty emotional. I'm getting a little verklempt even thinking about it. It was uh, it was Oprah's final show. <clears throat> She's been a mentor to me. (laughs) It was interesting watching the show. I watched it. And how she shared about the journey of 25 years. And towards the end of the show, she, she started to talk about Jesus. And it was interesting to hear her words and to know kind of her journey I don't know where Oprah's heart is with the Lord. I'm not here to judge her heart. God knows her heart. But it's always interesting to to hear what she says about the Lord. She spoke on Wednesday to 30-some million people. And all of the reports about Oprah's life talk about what an incredible spiritual influence she's had on America and the world. But here's what she said on Wednesday. She said, all of these years, the reason that I've been able to make it through is because of my team and Jesus. There's nothing but the hand of God that has made it possible for me. Anticipating the questions about which God she was talking about, she continued. I'm talking about the same one you're talking about. I'm talking about the Alpha and the Omega, the Omniscient, the Omnipresent, the Ultimate Consciousness, the Source, the Force, the All of Everything There Is, the One and Only G-O-D. She says, well, listen, I know something that I've never been alone, and you haven't either. I know that presence or that flow, some people call it grace, is working out in my life at every single turn, and yours too if you let it in. The writer of the article says, was Oprah preaching? And says, yes, indeed she was. And she says, how did she know about this flow and all that was going on? She said, well, I know it because of my father and my mother got together and out popped me. And so Oprah's theorem on the existence of God is reliant upon the story of her own conception. She says, I know an incredible miracle when I came out. God is love. God is life. And your life is always speaking to you. First it whispers. And if you don't pay attention, it keeps whispering. It gets louder and louder. So I ask you, what are the whispers in your life right now? And then she talked about the light and being the light, and going after the light. She talked about the Lord in various ways, and about Jesus, and all kinds of terminologies. Anne Lofton, who's a professor at religious history, commented on it, and actually the thing that was interesting was, on Wednesday, the news was Oprah's final show. There was really nothing else going on in the world. Truly, if you turn to the channel... It was Oprah's final show. 
Do you understand the influence of this woman across the world? And she's done a ton of good, hasn't she? And I think she's a pretty amazing woman. But the spiritual influence and what she says about Jesus, I think, is often confusing. Here's what Ann Lofton says, professor of religious history at Yale University. She wrote a book, Oprah and the Gospel of an Icon. She said early in her career, she was more comfortable talking about God, Jesus. But then she started to get into the universal language of the Spirit. And she wrote, she wants to be viewed as someone who translates and understands herself as a Christian woman, but reflect a modern attitude about religion and religious institutions. All throughout her journey of the show, she would talk in some form about Jesus or God or the Spirit or light, about self-esteem, about building up that you can do it. 2008, she endorsed a book that sold three and a half million copies called A New Earth, Awakening Your Life's Purpose, Eckhart Tolle. Some of you remember this. And in a webinar that she had, where millions watched, she said this, she said, Jesus didn't really come to die on the cross. It wasn't about him coming to do that. It was about him coming to show us how to do it, life how to be, to show us Christ's consciousness and that he had consciousness and that consciousness abides in all of us. Again, I'm not here to judge Oprah's heart, but she talks about our Lord often and as you listen to her and if you listen to her closely, it's very confusing. Who really is Jesus? Who really is our God? What are we actually following? The world is actually confused by it. There's article after article of the secular world. and right, What is she talking about? Because it's all over the place about who Jesus is. As we enter into Luke 9 this morning, there was that same confusion. Who is this Jesus that's roaming this planet? Who is this guy? Even the disciples, as they were walking with him, didn't quite get it, did they? They were trying to understand. And as we come into Luke chapter 9, one of the things that Jesus wants to make very clear to his disciples and to you and me, he wants you to know without a doubt who he is. That there isn't some confusion about who God in the flesh is, Jesus. And so he shares with his disciples, and he shares with them, and he poses a question, the most important question, who do you say that I am? Jesus had been about two years with his disciples, and he decides to take them up north into an area of Dan, an area called Caesarea Philippi. And he takes them up north, and in this area was really the epicenter of pagan worship. And it was the gathering point, and from this place it spread all throughout Israel. And the the primary worship was to the pagan god Pan, the, the goat god. 
And when you show up there, and still to this day, those of us who've been together, and we'll be going here in a couple of days, but you show up there, and there's an incredible mountain there, and then in the mountain there is carved in these little alcoves places where all these idols were placed. And then there's a big cave where a spring came out of it, doesn't anymore. But inside that cave, and where that spring came forth, it was said to be, that's the gates of hell. That if you were to go down into the depths there, you would enter into hell. That's where Jesus takes his disciples. And I want you to get the picture. He's training his disciples up. He's starting to reveal who he is. And he brings them to the center of pagan worship. And so I think Jesus, in light of all that's going on, and all that's going on around him, and again, people are worshiping, and then there's the multitudes who continue to follow Jesus. It's never just the twelve, sometimes. But there's always people like, there's that Jesus. Let's find out what he's about. So they show up, and they're there as well. But Jesus is talking with his disciples. And I think it's the idea of, in light of all this, fellows, in light of all of these idols, in light of all of this pagan worship, in light of all that's going on in the community around us, who do they say I am? And who do you say I am? Because there's a lot of spiritual influence going on around here. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus ministers to them and asks them the question, what are you hearing about me? It's interesting in Luke. Luke puts it in the context of prayer. And I think that's very purposeful. Luke highlights prayer several times in his gospel, and it's always at pivotal points of Jesus' life or transitional points. That Jesus would be praying as he entered into significant moments before his baptism or before he chose the twelve or at the Garden of Gethsemane. Prayer was right in the middle of significant things that were taking place in the life of Jesus or the training of his disciples. And this was one of those significant moments. You need to understand who I am, Jesus is saying. I need it to be very clear. And I want you to get a grasp of who I am. And so we ask that question. The first question. Who is it in light of all of these idols and all these people worshiping here and as people have been following, what are you guys picking up? Who do they say that I am? He's not asking about the priests or the kings or the governments, but he's concerned about the people, the crowds. What's the, what's the flow right now? Some say, well, you're, some say you're John the Baptist. That's the idea of, you know, you're a great preacher, isn't it? And we've heard that about Jesus from others, haven't we? Hey, he was a good man, a great preacher. Had some good things to say. Some say you're Elijah. And that connection is you're the miracle worker. You're doing amazing things. You're like Elijah. Some say you're a prophet. You have incredible wisdom, insight. You bring truth to matters that 
are amazing. You see, that's what the culture was saying. That was where people were at and how they understood Jesus. And they were trying to grasp him, and they were trying to understand who he was, but they didn't get it. And the disciples still were wrestling. Who is this man we're following? What's he all about? The culture was saying we want to follow the faith healer. How cool it is. Maybe we'll be healed at the same time. Who do they say I am? That's one important question. What is it that's going on around us? What, is, what are the masses saying about me? That's a good question that Jesus dives into. But as we desire to follow Jesus Christ, you and I, we have to get to the right question, the necessary question. Because if we don't ask the right question, it's a matter of life or death about Jesus. There's a story about, about a missionary who was out in South America. And he was out ministering there. And the temperatures got to be about 120 degrees. And he wanted to cool off in the, in the river. But he had heard about the man-eating fish, the piranha. And so the missionary asked the, the local people of the area, said, hey, is it okay for me to swim because I've heard about the man-eating fish? And they said, oh, yes, it's fine. It's fine to swim. The man-eating fish will not bother you. The man-eating fish, the piranha, will only attack people when they swim in schools. And they do not swim in schools here. And so you should be fine. And have no fear of the man-eating fish. And so all summer long, he was swimming and, and enjoying and cooling off in the incredible temperatures. And then one day, there was a fisherman who was out fishing, and his boat tipped over, and they never found his body. And the missionary said, was this the man-eating fish that maybe ate him? He said, oh, no. The man-eating fish will not, will not attack in this area because they only attack if they swim in schools. And so, no, it wasn't the man-eating fish. You say, well, you know, why is it that the man-eating fish don't swim in schools around this area? And I said, oh, the man-eating fish don't swim in schools around this area. They'll never be in schools where alligators are. you got to ask the right question. <laughs> it really is a matter of life and death spiritually. It is a matter of life or death spiritually. It's not who do they say I am. That's an important question. The piranha question is good. But you've got to ask other questions. Will I die if I swim here? The important question is, for each and every one of us, and what Jesus asks of his disciples, who do you say that I am? The question really has only one correct answer. And as he says it to the disciples, he doesn't expect them to have a variety of answers about who he is. Jesus doesn't say to Peter, 
Hey, Peter, good answer. You answered correctly, but, you know, do you have any other thoughts? Maybe let's do a group think here. And we'll put all our thoughts together about who I am, and we'll put it on Wikipedia, and it'll go on the Internet. And, of course, it's true if it's on the Internet, because it's Wikipedia. What other opinions? No, he doesn't do that, does he? Any other answers, guys? Who do you, and actually that's plural, by the way, who do you, disciples of mine, say that I am? And Peter, as the spokesman, speaks up. And he says, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one of God. Jesus doesn't ask about feelings, about how they feel about him. Hey, Judas, how do you feel about me? You know, many times we want it based on that. We want Jesus who's always loving, accepting, always providing, like, oh, of course, you know, Jesus blessed me. He blessed me with this and this and this, and he blessed me. This is my Jesus. How you feel about Jesus does not change who he is. How you feel about Jesus does not change who he is. The anointed one. The son of God, most high. The savior of the world. And it doesn't change our messed up circumstance that we are sinners in need of a savior. Who do you say Jesus is? There's only one answer. And Jesus points it out, and Peter responds, you are the anointed one. Luke keeps highlighting his identity. Luke keeps pointing out all throughout his gospel, Luke 2, there is a child who is born unto you. He is Christ the Lord. When John the Baptist is getting recognition as the Messiah, what does John the Baptist do? He says, no way, it's not me. There is one who is coming who is Christ He's the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Christ is this guy, not me. The demons were crying out in Luke 4, You're the Son of God. You're the Anointed One. When he was healing of the paralytic in Luke 5, the crowds were asking, Who can forgive sins like this but God alone? Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, and I hope for us that we have responded the same way. You are the Christ, the anointed one. You are the Savior of the world. And it was an amazing turning point, I think, for the disciples, for Peter and the guys. To come to that recognition. And Matthew, the Lord says to Peter, you didn't come to that knowledge on your own. That was given to you by the Father. That you would understand. That's what God's doing in each of our hearts, right? He's ministering to our hearts and revealing to us who Jesus is. Just like he did to Peter. You didn't just come to grasp that through man. God got a hold of you and he revealed to you exactly who I am. I'm not just some guy. I'm not just some miracle worker. I'm not just a good teacher. I'm the Christ. You've answered correctly, Peter. That was the one answer. 
And you know what? Peter's understanding, and for you and me, it's the same thing. It goes deeper. We begin to, to understand in our journey who the Lord is. We start to understand more about who He is. But the thing that we need to come to is that we acknowledge who He is. That we boldly declare that He is the Lord, that He is the Messiah. Here's what Romans 10 says. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. As God is working on your heart and then you proclaim, I know this to be true. And again, your understanding, maybe at that moment, isn't ultra deep, but it gets deeper and deeper as you surrender your life to Christ. What an amazing faith for these disciples. They go against public opinion, don't they? Who's everybody else say that I am? Well, they say you're Elijah, a prophet. Public opinion is a flow the whole other way. And they stand firm. And they boldly declare, you are the Christ. How difficult that must have been. Have you ever been in a situation like that? To to declare the Lord is absolutely in contrast to everything around you. And sometimes you're, you're just scared to even bring it up. The disciples are at a place where they understand that, you know what, to acknowledge you as Christ is not mainstream. It isn't going to be comfortable. For centuries, faithful Jews have been waiting the Messiah. They went against all that the Jews were waiting for. The Jews were going, this isn't the guy. The disciples were the first ones really to claim that he is the one. They stood against the Roman government, which they were okay with Christians worshiping, but you had to declare that Caesar is the only Lord. And so what happened to the disciples when they say Christ is the anointed one, not Caesar? Guess what? They lost their lives. They stood up and they faced the culture. And that's hard for us today to go against the culture. You see, it's interesting, and you guys have had these encounters, but people are okay with your beliefs. They're okay that you follow Jesus. But boy, do they get riled up when you say that Jesus is the anointed one. The only answer is he is the Messiah. Basically you're saying he is the only way to life and salvation, which is true according to the gospel and according to our God, creator of the universe, Yahweh, I am, who gave his son Jesus so that we might have life. Man, culture struggles when you say Jesus is the only way. You know what, dear Oprah wrestled with that question too. And she actually said in one audience taping, how could Jesus be the only way? Mainstream culture today 
doesn't want you to put that in their face. How dare you? The disciples boldly declare, and so should we, if we know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Listen, I know this is what culture says, but I want to show you the real Jesus. I want you to know who he is, because this right question of who do you say I am is a matter of life or death spiritually. And they stand up and they declare. You see, it's not that we're saying that Jesus is the only way, necessarily. It's God in the flesh who says that. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody, and that means nobody, comes to the Father, comes into relationship with holy God, but through me, Jesus says of himself. John 14, 6. Lots of people leave out that ending statement, but through me. Lots of religion, lots of philosophy. Lots of philosophy and religion says, I come to the Father through me and my effort and my work and my good life. And Jesus says, that's the furthest thing from the truth. I paid it all on the cross for your sin. The only reason you have life is because of all that I did for you. Would you place your life and your trust in me as your Lord and Savior? There's only one answer. He's the Savior. We are not. Who do you say that Jesus is? As he's declaring this, he says, Peter, you've answered correctly. He talks about he has to go to the Christ. He must It's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's the intention of the love of God. For God so loved the world, He gave His Son. He must go to the cross and die. And He shares that with the guys. And in Matthew, Peter's like, you've got to be kidding, Lord. No way. Can't do it. Don't do it. And what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Your ways... Your thinking is not that of God. And do not impede what I came for. To die for the sins of man. We face many different Christian beliefs. Prosperity gospel. Spiritual leaders who are allowed to lead when their sexuality is all messed up. Everything seems to be okay these days and acceptable because... Our God is so loving and gracious, of course he would allow this to go on. We flow and we go upstream in what religious society says often. If you want to follow the real Jesus, if you want to be a real disciple, a follower of him. Peter declares it. And his understanding initially, when he says, you're the anointed one, you know, his understanding truly is that he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the one who's going to sit on the throne of God. He is going to be the one who will deliver us. That's what he sort of understood at the time. But it would go much deeper, wouldn't it? And God allows that growth in our life. And he starts to understand. That was his answer at the time, but it would become later that he would boldly declare about who God was. 
The answer really is that He is the anointed one of God. He is the one who will bear our sin. He is the one who will die on the cross for the weight of our sin that we cannot bear ourselves. You are the one who was raised again from the dead. You are the Lord of lords. You are the King of kings. You are God in the flesh who came to die. You are Messiah. You are Savior of the world. That's the answer. Who do you say that I am, Jesus says. It's a life or death question spiritually. We start by acknowledging that the Lord is our Savior. And then we learn to follow him out of love relationship. Not out of duty. Not out of, I have to do all these steps. We follow him in obedience. The scriptures say, if you love me, you'll obey my commands, my truth. Because it's life-bringing. If you love me. We acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. And we must all answer the question. He says, you will, I will suffer and die. But let me tell you, Peter, you understand me as the anointed king, but let me really share with you what a follower of Jesus Christ looks like. If you really want to come after me. And he says, you must deny yourself. It's the same words used in, in Peter's denials of Christ. You must repudiate, you must renounce, you must disown yourself. It's not you self-loathe, despise yourself. That's not what God's getting at. But you must deny who you are. It's not, it's not just giving up chocolate or, or, or coffee for Lent. It's a whole lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that says, you know what? I choose to follow my Lord and Savior who has done everything for me. It's a life that renounces a living in self-interest, that it's all about me, trying to live in my own strength, trying to make things happen on my own, depending really on myself, and I become my own idol. Denying ourselves learns to trust in our Lord that he must save because we cannot. We deny ourselves and take ourselves off the throne and we allow Jesus to be King of Kings. That's denial of self. And then he says, I want you to take up your cross. You know, when you think about things that you want to do in life, on my bucket list is not taking up my cross necessarily. Let's go do this. What a great thing to do. But he says, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, then you will learn to take up your cross. We think often that taking up our cross means dealing with difficult things, a painful sickness, trials, or loss of jobs. But taking up your cross is not an unavoidable trial that you passively submit to. Jesus says this is a daily response to being a follower of Jesus Christ. Have you thought about that lately? If you want to come after me, you will deny yourself 
that your life is not about you, that you're not in control. And you will take up your cross, not once a month, not occasionally, not when it seems to, you know, fit, daily. Daily. That means this Sunday morning, daily. What does that look like? You understand that in Jesus' day, it wasn't, the cross wasn't an implement of irritation. It wasn't an inconvenience. It wasn't even really suffering. The cross was an instrument of torturous, slow execution. If you were to say to someone, your cross shall be taken up, they knew very specifically that once that cross was taken up, you are a dead man. You are a dead man. Do you understand? You who no longer live, but Christ who lives through you. Everything that you're trying to do, everything where you're placing yourself, it's all about your self-esteem. You know, it's amazing how many books, Christian books are out there about our self-esteem. I don't see anywhere in scriptures talking about our self-esteem. Really. I mean, you should have a good, positive you know, view of yourself. You're made in God's image. But it's amazing how everything is focused on, you should feel good about yourself. I mean, the, the, the leading in these writings is, is it's all about how you feel good about yourself. I've got to be honest, following Christ is about emptying and about letting Christ fill us and about really going through the journey that he's gone through. And it's not so focused on, I hope my self-esteem is good today. It's about I'm living for Christ today. And you live in the image of Christ, who says that you're beautiful, who says you're my child. But it really isn't about your self-esteem. I can't tell you how many self-esteem books are out there. It's about taking up your cross. Denying yourself. The man who took up his cross was a dead man. It's not something that you just arrive at. There's no shortcuts or quick fixes. And quite honestly, taking up your cross is never finished in this life, is it? Taking up your cross means that Jesus is right. That he is the anointed one. That he is the Lord of lords. When, in the Roman government, when you would take up your cross, they would let you carry it through town. They would make you carry it through town up to the place of crucifixion. You know why they did that? They did that so as you walk through town, it was acknowledgement. You are deserving of this death. And you are a witness, and it is testified here, as you carry that cross, the Roman government is right. And you are wrong. So the image going, imagine, through the disciples' minds is, I agree with Jesus. He is right. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the Son of God. He's the only one who can actually go on the cross and pay for my sin. That's who our Lord is. Do you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ? We need to ask that question. Who do you say that he is? And when we boldly declare that, and we come to that place, and we grow in that, 
then he keeps working in us. And we are his followers. And we, we follow him and we take up our cross. We deny ourselves. We let him be Lord of our lives. That's real discipleship. And let God build you up. And let God restore you. But come follow him. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. Let's pray. Father, I just pray for us as we desire to follow you, and, and sometimes we struggle with that. We want a life that, to be honest, is just kind of about us. And so, Lord, we surrender that to you this morning. And, Lord Jesus, help us. Help us to walk in this journey. We want to be disciples of yours, and we want to learn to take up our cross. Give us the strength to do so. And Father, thank you so much that you died on the cross for our sin, that you gave us life. You rose again, and as we believe upon you, we have life. And we just praise you, your holy and beautiful name. And we declare this morning, you are the Son of God. You are the Anointed One. You are the Messiah. You are our Lord. And we love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.